What's going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I'm here with Cole Swanson and also joined by my buddy Aaron Young. Aaron, what's up, man? How you doing? Aaron, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a fourth-year pharmacy student, getting close to the end of the tunnel, looking for a job. Nice. nice. And uh, which rotation are you on right now, just out of curiosity? <laughs> Do the worst, this- is it the worst one you've had yet? It's it's a different one. Okay, I've uh, been with this weirdo over at the Fetter Health Clinic in Wait a minute. downtown Charleston. Weirdo. weirdo. <laughs> he has a podcast. He talks a lot about diabetes and mm. random stuff. A lot of random stuff is also thrown in there. Mostly random, actually. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Aaron, uh, what's your plans after after graduate? Because that's coming up uh, May. So you get you got one rotation left or two? Two rotations left. Two rotations left. So home stretch. Um, what's what's in the cards for you afterwards? What's your career goals? Currently waiting to see if I match for a managed care residency. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, um, thinking maybe looking at specialty pharmacy or something related to that. Nice, cool. Um, so, what are we talking about today, Cole? Before we get started, um, I feel like it would be judicious to do a little coronavirus update, <sighs> only because listen, fine, listen. I'm listening. Only because right before we recorded, I was watching the press conference. Mm-hmm. You probably work, so man, I've seen it. Um, but the CDC person was on there, and I guess not a lot has changed since our episode three weeks ago. Except there, I mean, there's more cases. And the big update, I guess, is that the CDC is like, yeah, there's probably going to be an outbreak in the U.S. So kind of prepare yourselves. Mm. But at this point, you know, there isn't. But uh, yeah, I guess if you're in a health system or um, even in a clinic, you might want to shake off your pandemic preparedness handbooks and come up with a plan. Well, that's good. That's mm-hmm. good. It's, it's important to get everyone kind of in a good mood before we start yeah. our topic. I think that's the so, best way to do it. Just prepare yourself for the next bubonic plague. Mm-hmm. Basically what Cole's saying. No, it's still not, it's still not bad in the U.S. I don't yeah. like fear-mongering. Yeah. But preparing's not bad. Yeah. Thanks, news guy. Yeah. You're welcome. Fear-mongering. <laughs> good word. Um, so yeah, that's good stuff. And then, um, the, uh, if you're wondering about updates and stuff, you listen to our podcast from a couple weeks ago and we have all the different, uh, like the CDC links and stuff like that. You can yep. check out if you're interested. Um, so today, what are we talking about? Um, well, we're going to, we're not redoing a topic, but we're refreshing and adding to, that's what I like to say. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Uh-huh. So we're talking about anemia and, um, in our previous episode from, Almost a year and a half ago, yeah, at least. I think it was 2018. We hit on iron deficiency and I believe macrocytic anemia. Yeah, folate and B12 deficiency. Folate and B12. Yeah, so that both was all, of those. That was all we hit on. Uh, so today we're going to expand a little bit into anemia of chronic disease, and we'll do a little refresher on the various types of anemia. And, um, you know, prepare yourself. It's going to be good. Coming at you, coming at you quick. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we were, we were actually joking before we started recording that because we were looking at the downloads and things and we saw that this month we've had like 70 downloads on that episode mm-hmm. from 2018. Yeah. So we were joking there's going to be at least like 70 people that are going to sit there and go, what the heck? I just listened to an episode on anemia. Why are you doing it again? Wasted so, my time. To those people, I say, sorry about that. My valuable commuting time. So hopefully uh, find some more stuff on the podcast that you like more than anemia twice in a row. But yeah, we're going to kind of go through it. We'll hopefully touch on some definitions and broaden the 
the look because there's anemia we could i mean we could do 1700 episodes on anemia if we really got into it yeah we could and um, listen to the i mean if you've listened to the episodes that we have kind of double dipped into they're always different i mean we always give different information every time um we try to mostly because we have to refresh ourselves every time we do an episode so there's always new stuff absolutely so um i guess uh where do you want to start cole um do you want to do a little refresher of iron deficiency and macrocytic before we go into the chronic disease yeah yeah let's, let's definitely do that okay um so yeah iron deficiency anemia so this is of course body stores of iron are dropping uh can't support your normal red blood cell production this can be because of uh, inadequate dietary iron uh, you don't have adequate absorption of iron in the blood or there's some type of bleed whether it's gastrointestinal or otherwise um, or even loss of iron in the urine can cause an iron deficiency anemia so your iron equilibrium is um, thrown off kilter and that can be because of multiple mechanisms uh, but treating it is if you're not treating the underlying condition really just involves uh, supplementing with iron so the the world health organization um, their kind of like criteria they go with for adults is a hemoglobin level less than 12.5 grams per deciliter um, children it's less they usually say less than 11 um, if I think it's 6 to 14 and then less than 12 um, or less than 12 uh, 6 to 14 and then younger than that would be less than 11 um, the US we typically have slighter, slightly higher um, levels so for males we would say less than 13.5 females less than 12.5 um, and uh, the other thing too that was kind of interesting was um, the, there's some some uh, it, some data that will show that people who live obviously at higher elevation seem to have a little bit better levels. Um, I've seen that. So I, and I've, you hear about athletes and stuff trying to train at elevation to improve their, uh, their cardiovascular mm-hmm. abilities before a event. So that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Um, is but, that uh, legal? And is the blood doping when like you store up that blood that you built up while you're up there? And then when you come back down, you like, supplement with that blood is that what blood doping is so i when they talk about blood doping like usually they're talking about using like erythropoietin or oh, they're something like, li- that, like you're literally stimulating it. oh okay. yeah okay. okay so the the blood the, the only knowledge i have is like what people would tell me when i was in like middle school about oh, what it well, was yeah <laughs> there's a lot of knowledge around blood doping in middle schools nowadays it's crazy <laughs> i think there is but um yeah no as far as i know i don't know of any sports that have actually like made it illegal to train it out just to go to colorado and yeah. run around up in denver or something and i think they can even use like i want to say it was michael phelps when he was training for you aaron's we used to be a collegiate swimmer so he would actually know this better ah, but i think right? i think michael phelps was actually using like a some like one of those chambers or whatever to do like sleeping mm. in like a bariatric yeah, chamber or something. i remember him sleeping in hyperbaric chamber or i think i saw a video of him swimming in like a pool with a bubble over it almost to increase or i guess suck out the oxygen decrease the mm-hmm. oxygen content in the air over the pool so that it would simulate being an altitude right. without actually having to travel to the mountains or so something. did you ever sleep in a hyperbaric chamber no i like to breathe nice yeah i do too the um i remember uh remember those training masks they used to have yeah oh for, they still like, have them still, people still run around with those things on. oh goodness if you do that please stop um but they uh, they had the one that looks like a ninja mask instead of like yeah. the world war one right gas mask they used to have yeah. but so i put one of those on one day i don't know if you've ever actually tried one no, but 
it's great because if you try to run in one, it literally just feels like you're suffocating to death <laughs> while you're running. It's, it's the most miserable thing you can ever put in your I face. I love when I'm at the gym and I just see somebody like curling 12s and he's got one of those on, you know? It's not the move. No. If you're doing that, I'm serious. You just reevaluate and maybe consider. Not to act like I go to the gym all the time or anything. I actually currently have no gym membership, so. Oh, my gosh. We're working on a home gym. Okay. Well, you look great. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> I'm no collegiate swimmer. That's true. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, it's very true. <laughs> so his arms. Look at these things. These, these, aren't, doing, these aren't doing the butterfly stress. <laughs> these uh, lats. Come on. So can I interpret this uh, elevation and normal hemoglobin level to mean that listeners in, say, Denver or somewhere of a higher elevation would expect their average patient to be, average patient's hemoglobin levels to be a little higher? Could be. I don't know that um, clinically that they would adjust anything because of that but um, yeah maybe don't ask me <laughs> i don't live in denver definitely don't ask cool <laughs> now so um anyways that was a huge tangent that i got on so yeah so other things with iron deficiency anemia you were talking about labs other useful labs so you're going to get a cbc of course that's going to involve that um you might want to get a serum iron uh, a tibc which is the total iron binding capacity you're going to need a serum ferritin um evaluate for hemoglobinuria, pulmonary uh, hemosiderosis, uh, also reticulocyte hemoglobin content, those sorts of things. Those are other tests that might come in handy. Um, as far as what you would expect to see on a CBC with iron deficiency anemia, uh, you'll probably see a low MCV and a low MCHC. So MCV is the mean corpuscular volume. I had trouble pronouncing things in episode 39 a year and a half ago. Uh, and then MCHC is the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. Also, elevated platelet count in many cases and normal or elevated uh, white blood cell count. Yeah, and, and I know, I mean, there's lots of ways, obviously, to kind of interpret different types of anemia and figure out what's going on. But one of the things that I kind of look at first, once you've established the fact that their hemoglobin levels are low, is looking at the MCV itself and seeing, you know, if we would expect the normal range, depending on the reference, you're looking at some of them say 80 to 100, some say like 84 to 96. But basically, when you go below that normal range, um, you're looking at... Um, usually a more iron deficiency um, type anemia there's some other things it could be as well but um that usually is kind of where you're thinking is the um, the iron deficiency if it's normal then there's some other options it could be like i mean there's potentially chronic disease and some other things and then if it's higher than that the, that's more of your macrocytic anemia which we're going to get into and that's more the b12 folate and things like that right so mcv is usually like kind of the first thing they can give you some insight as to where which direction you need to go all right. Yeah. Um, so what are the patients going to look like? Um, sadly, they will give the probably give the very nonspecific complaint of fatigue um, or just diminished capability to perform labor or perform activities of daily living. They may have leg cramps. Uh, sometimes they crave ice, which we talked about in the uh, previous episode. So they just might want to suck it or chew it, or they might even crave cold celery or other cold vegetables. Um, they might have an intolerance to cold. They may get infections a little more easy. Uh, stuff like that might point you towards throwing this on your differential. Yeah, and so Cole mentioned uh, like the iron levels. Obviously, we would expect serum iron to be decreased in these patients. Um, and total iron binding capacity. 
um, potentially to be increased. And then uh, ferritin levels mm-hmm. is another one that we would typically, in iron, true iron deficiency anemia, would expect it to be decreased um, because that's kind of like your iron stores. And so once you've sort of depleted your regular iron supply, then you, you start depleting your iron stores and right. that brings that ferritin level down. And because and, of that, you'll have an elevated TIBC, which would be the iron binding capacity. Right. And that's going to be um, important when we get into like more of like the anemia from due to inflammation or chronic disease is going to be looking at the ferritin level. So we'll get back to that in a second, but um, that's a one way that we can kind of differentiate between the two. Right. right. So if they have normal ferritin, it's probably something else. Right. So when you are treating um, iron deficiency anemia, it's obviously um, typical to start with just regular oral iron supplements. Um, so, you know, the ferrous sulfate is the one we've all seen before. Um, ideally we would think like hundred to 200 milligrams of elemental iron per day. Now, that being said, that might be easier to get to in theory versus actually giving someone a dose of ferrous, ferrous sulfate two or three times a day, because it can be really hard on the stomach, causes constipation, um, irritation in the stomach. So, um, you know, when we see ferrous sulfate, we're thinking that even though it's 325 milligrams, that's the salt form. And right. so the elemental iron of that is only about 65 milligrams mm-hmm. of elemental iron. So you're giving it about three times a day to get that 200 milligram right. replenishment. And you're usually having to do that for about three to six months to actually mm-hmm. replenish the stores. So um, ferrous fumarate, uh, ferrous gluconate, those are the other common forms that are available over the counter. Um, there's also things like um, carbonyl iron. Uh, which is a Fairlet 90, I think is the brand name for that one. There's polysaccharide iron complex. They call that one new iron, the NU hyphen iron, real, mm. fan, real fancy. Real fancy. And I think the the main focus of those is to basically, they were trying to make iron supplements that had less GI side effects. Right. That's their big claims to fame. Um, we also have slow FE. going to say, yeah, that's the common one you counter. see over the counter. Yeah. Yeah. And to, when you look at like the stats, I mean, there's... The cost, you know, that those other iron, you know, the prescription irons have along with them, like the new iron, um, are usually, I guess in my opinion, would kind of offset the potential benefit that they have. Right. They're not necessarily that much um, more, or not that much less GI side effects with those particular drugs. Right. And some people, you know, they say take it with food because it helps with GI, but it can inhibit absorption of iron as well. So kind of got to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Or don't take it with salt because, you know, empty stomach. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So the definitely ideally on an empty stomach. And then also, too, um, one thing that can help absorption because iron needs an acidic environment to actually be absorbed. So um, giving it with either vitamin C or even like something like orange juice, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ascorbic acid and vitamin C can actually increase the acidity enough to increase the absorption. So that's one of the things that they'll do sometimes in order to get that. Also separating it from like your antacids, your H2 blockers, um, giving it several hours on either side. Um, and so the iron's not being inhibited by one of the antacids. Right. So there is a new, um, fairly new iron supplement. I don't think it's actually been available. It's actually available on the market yet, but it is FDA approved called um, Acrifer. Okay. Have you seen that at all? I have not. Ferric Maltol. Um, is the actual name of it. And it's um, it was approved in July of 2019, but it's still not available from what I've been able to, to see. And it's a non-salt oral formulation of ferric iron. And 
basically, when you look at the GI side effects of it, so for example, constipation, you had 4% with um, ferric maltol versus anywhere from 10 to 39% with ferrous sulfate, depending on the study. So again, their big thing is that it's going to decrease those GI side effects and hopefully increase compliance and all that. Um, I don't know what the price is going to be. I actually tried to look this up and uh, couldn't find a price. Um, so, I guess if it's not being marketed yet. Yeah. You it'd know. be interesting to see what that price tag is because mm-hmm. if it's really high, insurance companies, I doubt, will be jumping to pay for it. Speaking of that, you know how there there was a law passed, I think it was last year or two years ago, where on um, med- medicine or yeah, medicine commercials, they had to show the price of the drug, like the list price at the mm-hmm. end. They've totally gotten around that by saying, like, you pay as little as $5 with this copay card, so they never show the price. I remember I saw, I think it was an Eloquist commercial, where they did list the price, and I thought that was super interesting, so I took a picture of it. The next day, they had the same commercial, and right at the end, it was just like, pay no more than $5 with the copay card. They got the copay card yeah. going. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so... Oral um, iron is obviously the go-to, but if that doesn't work, then we have to go IV iron, parental iron. Right. Um, this is going to be something that is going to be a lot more, um, I guess, cumbersome for a patient because you're going to have to go to the clinic, you have to get mm-hmm. infusions. Um, sometimes you, there's it's a dosing schedule that you have to get done. Then you have to also worry about iron toxicities and right. other adverse effects. Uh, the, but there is a, several different options available. Um, the, the one that is... I guess if you look at like up to date and some of those other things, the one that seems to be a favorite amongst a lot of clinics is the iron dextran complex. Um, and that's cheaper than other formulations as well. Um, the, the one thing to kind of keep in mind with that is so several of these have the potential to have like anaphylactic reactions right. with them. Um, however, the only actual IV iron that is like required to have a test dose is that iron dextran complex. Infed. Yeah. So you give this uh, test dose, um, pretty small, I think it's like 25 milligrams of it, and uh, basically wait and see. Make sure they don't have any kind of a reaction, and then once you get that test dose, then you can go ahead and give the uh, the actual full um, infusion. Right. So um, there was a, another iron, um, IV iron that was approved last month um, in January uh, called um, Ferric Deresomaltose. Nice. Or Monoferric. I like that one. Monoferric. Yeah. Um, and so this is like the first, uh, quote unquote, FDA approved one dose formulation. So that's, you know, their big claim to fame. The problem with that, though, is others are already being used off label as single dose regimens. So this is this one's just actually in the labeled indication to be able to give as a one one dose thing. Right. It is an iron carbohydrate oligosaccharide that releases iron, binds to transferrin for transport to urethroid precursor cells incorporated into hemoglobin and i guess it's just i don't know if it acts over a long period of time or if it just gives you enough iron to be good to go but yeah very effective it looks like um now because of the potential infusion reactions some clinics you may see that are will kind of pre-treat or pre-medicate for um infusion reactions um it's going to be really hit or miss depending on which clinic you're at the up-to-date authors that talk about iron deficiency anemia basically say that the only time they ever pre-treat um, is, for, is with asthma, um, patients with multiple drug allergies, patients with some kind of like inflammatory arthritis condition, and they use methylprednisolone. Um, they never actually use diphenhydramine, so they just give the steroid and then give the infusion. Hmm. Um, but other places, I'm, I'm sure 
we'll try diphenhydramine as well, but they don't recommend it. Um, but yeah, so iron toxicity is the, the big thing to kind of keep an eye on to, as well. Um, if that happens, you have to give a chelating agent basically and get the iron back out of the system. Right. Get it, get the iron stores replenished. Now and, we're doing the opposite And then thing. get it back out again because you now cause toxicity. Perfect. Yeah. Um, you really want to reserve the, really the last option is, is, um, pack red blood cells or transfusion, which you really want to reserve for patients, uh, who have like a significant bleed or they're in danger of hypoxia or some type of coronary insufficiency. Um, so that's more an emergent acute situation. Yeah. All right. So that's kind of that, um, sort of, uh, Iron deficiency, the you know when the M- MCV is below the eighty, um, minocytic anemia. So let's talk about macrocytic. Sure. Um, again, we've talked about this in the other podcast, so I won't go into too much detail. But um, basically, you know, we have we can kind of break it down two different ways. With once you get to macrocytic anemia, you can talk about megaloblastic, uh, which is where the anemia is coming from, some sort of like an abnormal DNA metabolism mm-hmm. that's going to cause that decrease in uh, B twelve levels or folate levels. Um, now that could be from several different reasons. So if you think of like a uh, the auto um, antibody issue where the your your antibodies attack your um, intrinsic factor and disrupt that, and, and you get you lower your intrinsic factor from that, and you get you can't absorb B twelve from your diet um, because of that. That's where you get to like your pernicious anemia from. Um, and then it could be from other issues as well. But um, then we also have like the non-megaloblastic, which is more so when you have like this increased red cell surface membrane area. And that could be from several different things. I mean, alcoholism can cause that. It can be from like uncontrolled COPD. Uh, there's lots of different things. Accelerated erythropoiesis. Um, but usually the one we think about like macrocytic, a lot of times we... I guess more commonly, we'll see like a more megaloblastic B12 deficiency, folate deficiency. Um, and so <clears throat> thinking about like B12 and folate, they, they do work very closely together as far as the synthesis of those um, building blocks, if you will, for DNA, RNA, those base pairs. And so they are essential for kind of maintaining that integrity of um, not just the DNA synthesis, but also like the neurological system as well. And so they play a role in fatty acid biosynthesis, energy production, all kinds of things. And, you know, they're the actual, you know, production of them is, or their use in those, in those base pairs and the different enzymes and stuff that are involved with that um, DNA synthesis is pretty, pretty closely intertwined. And so a lot of times they will have kind of the same, I guess, um, presentation. Um, one of the quickest ways to be able to tell the difference between the two um, is because not just looking at the low serum levels of B12 or folate itself, but one of the first kind of levels that you can check that will change when you start moving towards this macrocytic anemia is your homocysteine levels and your um, methyl maloic acid levels. So when you, those are the first, so if you kind of got someone that's kind of like teetering on the edge of like normal and low um, B12 or folate, then definitely check homocysteine and um, MMA levels. Right. And you can um, hopefully be able to determine. And the what's interesting is um, elevated, so they'll both be elevated. Um, however, if elevated MMA uh, is, is found, that's actually indicative of B12 specifically. So folate 
doesn't actually have anything to do with that particular homocysteine affects both. Um, but the uh, MMA is only affected by, um, or only affects B12. Right. So if both are elevated, then you know, it's most likely a B12 deficiency. Right. Or it could be both together. It could be. Yeah. You talked about some causes of B12 deficiency with folate. Um, generally we get enough folate in our diet, uh, but folates are very thermolabile. So excessive heating can cause an activation of folate, uh, especially when foods are excessively diluted in water. So generally, our diet is going to be sufficient for folate, but alternative diets may, ca- may uh, contain little folate, and you might see that. Uh, there's also conditions or situations where there's an increased need for folate. So one um, that most people think of is pregnancy, especially in the first trimester. Uh, folate supplementation is very important. Um, to prevent spina bifida, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically folate's involved directly with that neural tube right. formation. So yeah, right. uh, they uh, and they will even recommend um, females that are of reproductive age right. basically taking folate because they saw a lot of times you don't realize you're pregnant until exactly. a couple weeks in or even months in, and so uh, they want to make sure that as much as possible you kind of catch that whole first trimester right. um, and get adequate folate levels. Exactly. So pregnancy, lactation, uh, even rapid growth in pediatrics, uh, also dialysis or psoriasis or exfoliative dermatitis. All of those can um, cause an increased demand for folate and potentially lead to folate uh, deficiency that needs to be treated. Treatment's fairly easy with that, usually oral folate. Right. Um, I think there is an injectable folate that's still available. I've never seen that actually used. I'm not really sure what the benefit of that would be. Um, but usually oral folate's plenty good enough. Another situation I can think of where uh, you would need folate supplementation is with certain drugs like methotrexate. Methotrexate. Always comes along with a um, follow it with folate because it, it will cause a, it's an antifolate. So it's going to cause folate deficiency. You need to supplement. Um, as far as B12 deficiency, usually it's as simple as taking an oral agent. Um, you can also use injectable. Um, and now they've gotten real fancy where they have like sublingual liquids and lozenges that you can use. Um, there's also a nasal solution. Yes. Pascaball. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I'd be very curious to see why you need to. Well, it's kind of like the people who don't want to get the flu shot. So they get the nasal mist, right? They don't want to stick themselves with the B12 injection once a month. So they're like, I'll just spray it up my nose, I guess. I get that. I did do the nasal mist when I was a kid one year. Never again is the worst. Way yeah. worse than a shot. Way worse. It feels like like after you get it, it's like you have a bad cold for two days because there's like nasal drainage, it feels like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't like it at all. I think basically, because it's a live virus in that case, but it's been DNA, DNA, or DNA-ally. Right. Genetically is what I was trying to say, like a D- normal intelligent person. <laughs> DNA-ally. DNA-ally, because I'm a moron. <laughs> uh, basically... Um, Genetically altered so that if it starts to actually migrate down into the lungs, it the the, heat, the body heat, the temperature in the lungs is just kills it off. It? Yeah, whereas, nice. versus natural flus, like no, nope, I'm good. I'll right. I'll settle in nicely here. <laughs> but um, yeah, so nasal solutions available. Um, pretty mild adverse effects with B12. The the big thing that I always think about that I think it's kind of overlooked with B12 deficiency is the drugs that can cause that that I think all of us see all the time, especially in like more primary care setting is metformin mm-hmm. can, can decrease the uh, intrinsic factor yeah. levels. So again, you have almost like this pernicious anemia, just without the autoantibodies, mm-hmm. just metformin doing it. And then, um, 
Oh, omiprazole as well. Yeah. So any, and basically any kind of, any PPI, um, any sort of, yeah, PPI and in theory, I mean, anything that can lower acidity cause you do, you do need an acidic environment, but the PPIs are more permanently lowering the acidity while you're taking it. So it's really more, uh, of an issue with that class. But, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen patients that are on both of those medications. And mm-hmm. um, one of the, the things to watch out for with that is the way it can kind of show up is all the other signs of anemia, like the fatigue and all that. But B12 is specifically can have some neuropathy mm-hmm. um, effects. And so we often hear someone that has diabetes, especially uncontrolled diabetes. It's like we just automatically assume that that's the reason for it, it's just diabetic neuropathy. Um, but some of it can actually be attributed to those B12 levels deficiencies. And so if we can actually correct that, we can get rid of some of that neuropathy with just a B12 supplement. Yeah. And B12 in general is important for proper neuronal function. So frequently that's part of the the panel that my wife orders and just to see if they have low B12, because if they do, it's one thing for various neurologic conditions that they would want to make sure is um, adequate and not below the range before they move on to other treatment. Yeah. All right, good stuff. Um, nice. Moving so on. that's a good review of what we talked about last time. Mm-hmm, good. So again, sorry for the people who just listened to it. But uh, all right, let's move on a little bit. Well, um, you know, I guess maybe if they're going in order, ooh, they're still a year true. and a half behind. They're going to a year and a half and they're going to be like, oh, this is a good refresher. Unless they're one of the bingers, which that's we true. don't understand you crazy people. It's so, awesome. Respect. I yeah. couldn't listen. If I had to listen to my own voice for more than five <laughs> minutes, I would lose it. Well, I put you on two times speed today. Did you? You I sound don't. really good, double speed. Do I, I don't. You can't understand a word I'm saying. Uh huh. But I'm extremely charismatic you and articulate. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> one point one point five is a little easier to listen to. That's yeah. My, that's, that's that's your go to. Okay. You remember uh, the people that the, the one comment that said they hate our voices? Yeah. Maybe if they listened to it on two point exactly, it would have fixed all the problems. Exactly, because I'm so monotone. Got it. But if you put me a 1.5, I go up in a solid octave. Right. Right? And then you really get that inflection. Yeah. What? Come on, guys. We need to find out who wrote that and learn back and be like, hey, we got, we got a solution to your problem. You need to take Other advantage. Other than leaving mean comments on our, on our iTunes account. Take advantage of modern technology before you leave a three-star. Yeah. Or a one-star, whatever that was. Yeah. It really hurt our I think feelings. I it a three-star. It's just a lame comment. Oh. Decent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Decent, <laughs> decent, and then like three comments up. More than decent. That was the yeah, that was great. Gosh. Anyways, we talk about our comments too much. <laughs> yeah, that's that's because they're hilarious sometimes. It's funny. But all right, so let's talk a little bit about. Um, I guess the, it's it's kind of weird because they've changed the wording a little bit. So it used to be anemia yeah. of chronic disease. Yeah. Now it's kind of that was so twenty eighteen. That's so twenty eighteen, and then how you have this shift to like anemia of inflammation, which mm-hmm. is kind of encompasses chronic disease, um, as well as like critical care anemia, things like that. Um, I would almost say it even lumps in like chronic kidney disease as CKD, well. Yeah, um, I still feel like anemia of chronic disease is a better umbrella term but i like it better I'm not too a perf- i'm not an expert right i don't write the textbooks i'm just yeah. reading i just read them kind of skim i skim, skim. The textbooks. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah no i mean that's kind of like the the new terminology and so i, I we i mentioned it just because i don't want there to be confusion um but but basically it's it's stemming from the same thing where right. chronic disease and usually we're thinking of like some kind of like rheumatoid condition. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be lots of like CKD, obviously. Mm-hmm. Any really inflammatory, infectious uh, condition, malignant disease yes. of a longstanding nature can cause it. Can cause can cause. But you do infl- frequently think of CKD, but yeah, yeah, other things as well. 
but that's um, when what makes it complex is because when, when we kind of see that the way that kind of looks and when we run labs and everything, uh, it kind of shows up as just an iron deficiency anemia in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially like in CKD, we always are kind of looking at that. Um, now, if it gets bad enough, then we can move to like those erythropoietin stimulating agents um, where, you know, the kidneys obviously is where uh, some of that erythropoietin originates from and all that. So you, as that decreases, you want to increase that level so that you can get your hemoglobin levels back up. Um, and we talked about that in our CKD episode, I believe. Right. But um, one of the things that's interesting with like anemia of inflammation or chronic disease, whatever you want to call it, is yes, your iron, your serum iron levels are often low. You may have the same increase in like total iron binding capacity um, potentially. But one thing is the ferritin that I mentioned last time so ferritin with iron with true just plain iron deficiency anemia is, is going to be low because that's your iron stores whereas in inflammation it's typically going to be either be normal or even elevated um, and that's because inflammation kind of triggers that it's ferritin has the potential to be like a inflammatory marker and so it'll actually increase um with with that right so if you're looking to classify it this way it would be considered a normocytic normochromic anemia uh, because it's an anemia which with the uh, average size and hemoglobin content of red blood cells are within normal limits. So normal in that sense. Uh, so it's some underlying condition that's causing the anemia. Yeah. And so, and, and the reason why I bring that up is because a lot of, you're going to treat it very similarly as far as replenishing the iron, looking for, if it gets bad enough to look look at going on erythropoietin even in some cases. Which is seems to be, other than treating the underlying condition, that seems to be the the treatment right and that's the big thing is looking for that ferritin levels because if you're looking at it just like iron deficiency yes you may replenish those iron stores and fix some of the symptoms but you really want to fix the underlying condition if possible which right. means either referring out to you know rheumatology or whatever's causing right. the issue but making sure you're actually fixing that problem so mm -hmm. that the mm -hmm. anemia resolves after you've replenished those iron stores and it doesn't just keep happening over and over again yeah could be various forms of heart disease could mm -hmm. be diabetes could be uh, IBS or other bowel conditions as well. Yeah, lots of different things. So making sure you're actually going after the, the disease is important. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. What else we got on this subject? A uh, little bit of stats. So in general, anemia in general is more common in women, uh, particularly those uh, in their childbearing years. Uh, in the latter decades of life in elderly people, it tends to occur without any particular sex predilection. So... Uh, whether male or female, you just generally are going to suffer from an anemia more often. Uh, but patients with CKD, chronic kidney disease, they are at risk of developing anemia um, more often in males than females. Although males do generally have higher hemoglobin values, they also have higher rates of CKD. And um, it looks like the prevalence of anemia is lower in current smokers, uh, which they attribute to a secondary ure urethrocytosis, interestingly. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, there's, um, and I have a list here too of just some other things that can potentially cause that um, anemia of inflammation. Um, so, tuberculosis can do it. Um, we mentioned uh, rheumatoid stuff, can, uh, gout, obviously, um, liver diseases. Um, you mentioned the malignancies. So, well, lots of different things can, can lead to the HIV. Right. Um, so, there's lots of different things that can lead to that chronic anemia of inflammation so if you are attacking the underlying condition 
um, and maybe you're you're at steady state with that. You're just not going to get any better. And they are still um, anemic. The preferred initial form of therapy in this case would be um, urethroparesis stimulating agents, like we talked about. Um, blood transfusions they try to reserve for severe and symptomatic cases. If you're going to use one of these ESAs, um, in the United States we have epoetin alpha and darbopoietin alpha, uh, which is Aronesp. Generally, um, there's they put out different guidance over the last mm, 10 or 13 years um, as to how far you should increase the hemoglobin. Uh, so there were in 2007 there were a couple studies, the CREATE and the CHOIR studies where the FDA added a black box warning to the labeling of epoetin alpha specifically, uh, but also darbopoietin to emphasize that ESAs may increase the risk for serious cardiovascular events and death uh, when they're dosed to achieve a target hemoglobin of greater than 12. So in November 2007, um, the FDA, the verbatim quote is, ESAs should be used to maintain a hemoglobin level between 10 and 12. So that was the guidance then. In 2011, they abandoned the concept of a target range for hemoglobin levels. Instead, they recommended using the lowest dose of uh, ESAs that you can to sufficiently reduce the need for red blood cell transfusions. So that was the goal, was just to reduce the need for transfusions. In 2012, uh, the CADIGO guidelines put out kind of a different recommendation. So this was more for CKD. They say the hemoglobin level uh, and adult patients with CKD should be maintained, not be maintained above 11.5 because I was going to put people at risk. Um, so some patients, they said, might have improvements in quality of life with hemoglobins above 11.5. So if you're going to do that, they need to be prepared to accept the risks uh, that that comes with. But it should definitely not exceed 13 because that's just going to put them in way higher risk. So in general, if you're using these, you want to keep it below 11.5 per Cadigo guidelines. Um, the FDA, I don't know, they don't seem to take a strong stance on it, but for sure, try to keep it below 12 if possible. And I've even seen it broken down further, if you, depending on, again, who you're looking at. But um, in CKD specifically, they'll break it apart as far as um, patients with CKD on hemodialysis versus not right. on hemodialysis. Yeah. Yeah. And so some, sometimes in, in, they'll even use a goal sometimes of, you know, where you decrease the dose or stop once you get above 10. Um, in patients with CKD that do not have hemodialysis and then above 11 with um, hemodialysis. So, and, and the reason for that, and, you know, Cole mentioned the, the studies, though, the CHOIR trial in particular um, is the one I always think about. Uh, they compared the, the two, like, kind of goal levels they had. 13.5 was in one group, and then 11.3 was the average in the other group. Um, the when you hit the higher target, um, basically you got no improvement in quality of life and you had a statistically significant increased risk for death and mind stroke. Um, and so it's interesting because you're trying, when you try to normalize the, I always think about it like almost like A1Cs. When you try to yeah. normalize it with medication, you run the risk of causing more harm than right. you, that you don't get the benefit that we would assume logically right. speaking that you would see so and the good. way i think about these at least I, I, I always see in my mind like the higher the hemoglobin is i just see like the blood it doesn't i'm sure physiologically it doesn't make sense but i just see it getting thicker and kind of more clogged um which you know make w would lead me to say oh gonna have a serious cardiovascular event or death because of that and if this is something if this is an area that kind of interests you i would 
this is kind of a little bit off topic, but you know, the, the Lance Armstrong stuff, you know, the kind of scandal that came up where he, him and several of his teammates and whatnot were, um, or American, I don't know if they're teammates, but whatever you call it in cycling, um, were using like these, uh, erythropoietin stimulating agents to kind of boost their ability to ride their bike forever. Um, <laughs> when, he, uh, multiple tour de France. Yeah. So he was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and they were talking about this and he was talking about guys having to literally get up like in the middle of the night and go ride because they're like, they could feel like their blood like congealing and like, they, yeah, it was the craziest thing I've ever, like listening to him describe, he was really open about it all. And, um, he was talking about like, like the whole teams are like, I think, I think he was the, one of the Russian teams, like a lot of their, their cyclists, like were all of a sudden just passing away. And they were like, oh, we don't know what's going on. And they were you have to give them really high levels of EPO. Those are Russians, man. Uh, aren't they like... They'll do anything to win. Aren't they like barred from this Olympics or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Are they? For similar things? They were for the last one and all the Olympics that were in... Um, shoot, where was it? 26... In Rio were uh, the Olympic athletes from Russia instead of oh, actually representing Russia. Right, right. right. Interesting. And then I think that was extended to this Olympics was because it? of some recent... It's something with drugs. Scandal. I'm I think sure. it was something with drugs. Yeah, drugs. Lots of drugs. <laughs> All the drugs. All the drugs in Russia. But um, yeah, so it's a, it's a, if you're interested in that, check out that episode because it's pretty nuts. Um, listening to him describe it because the fact that people take this stuff recreationally to improve athletic performance is a little bit crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, people do a lot of stuff to improve True. athletic performance that is not necessarily great for their health. Like tech. Testosterone. testosterone so you should maybe check out last week check out our last episode uh shameless plug <laughs> <laughs> nice uh so kind of finishing up here as far as some complications um of anemia of chronic disease and ckd as well so in a healthy individual urethropoietin um, exerts its effects in the bone marrow to help the production of red blood cells thereby improving oxygen concentration in the blood uh, so that would relieve the hypoxia uh, the problem is if you aren't getting that proper response. It's going to lead to anemia and other hypoxic events. I also want to talk a little bit about um, this cardiorenal syndrome. So you hear this word, this term thrown around a lot, which I did some digging, and it appears to be a relatively recent term. I saw one reference. They referenced Silverberg et al., which was some study. Um, and I looked into it, and I think it is a study that was published in the Bantau Journal. Um, in, from Tel Aviv, the Department of Nephrology and Cardiology, and some guy named Donald Silverberg in 2003, so not even that long ago, he coined this, ter this term, cardiorenal syndrome. Uh, so it refers to what really is a vicious cycle uh, where decreased kidney function, as seen in chronic kidney disease, leads to decreased urethropoietin production, and then anemia. So that's what we've been talking about. Severe anemia can lead to a compensatory left ventricular hypertrophy, um, because of that, so you're going to get heart issues, right? So because of that compensatory um, left ventricular hypertrophy, it eventually precipitates chronic heart failure, which causes a decline in blood perfusion to the kidneys, resulting in further kidney damage. So it's this crazy cycle that can result from anemia of chronic disease that's going to lead to kidney issues and then lead to heart failure and eventually other organs shutting down because of that. Um, this other study called Lefin Levin et al. estimated that for every one gram decrease in hemoglobin concentration, there's an increased 6% risk of left ventricular hypertrophy in patients with CKD. 
another study estimated um, that this, this one gram decrease in hemoglobin translated to a 42% increase in left ventricular dilation in patients uh, with stage five chronic kidney disease, so severe chronic kidney disease. Um, improvement of this is a known benefit of ESAs, so that's interesting. Um, but of course, other cardiovascular risks come along with anemia of chronic disease or CKD. Uh, the risk of death from a cardiovascular issue in general also increases with advancing age. Um, the impact of anemia, chronic disease, and CKD in the elderly population is extremely significant. Um, it's hard to be understated, but I thought the cardiorenal bit was, was interesting. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, you know, also to like, when you're kind of thinking about anemia in general, you know, there's a lot more than just what we've mentioned in as far as the potential diagnosis, there's, you know, aplastic anemia, there's hemolytic anemia, um, there's obviously sickle cell. Are you saying that we're going to have to do another anemia episode? Dude, I'm thinking we need to do a lot more anemia episodes. Another, Final. our anemia suite, we'll need to complete our anemia suite. You, you, Cole's all about doing a suite. Instead, instead of calling it a playlist or anything like that, <laughs> it's a suite, as if we like are a software company. Yeah. I love know, it. It sounds bit, very professional. It's a podcast term. Is like, it? I'm making it one. Oh, we're on a podcast. You, there you have it, folks. Get with the program. Mike. Sorry, sorry, sorry. My bad. So yeah, we're gonna do that, um, but uh, yeah. So we'll we'll cut that off as a kind of like a overview now, but then we'll have to get more specific. Maybe we'll do aplastic anemia soon. Okay. Yeah. See, there you go. Now you guys who are listening feel like you're a part of our meetings. That's how that's how we come up. That's with. how it goes. Um, we're ready to go, Aaron. Aaron saw the the real deal before. <laughs> that's what it is. That's that's how we. Come that's up how the with sausage it. is made, right, Mike? As do you want to bring up our patient case that we? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, you got a case? Earlier this week, yeah. Nice. I was creating a patient case for Mike for the blog slash his PA students, and I guess I got too creative throughout that process, and I decided to ask, uh, what if this patient were deficient in both iron and vitamin B12? What would that look like for her MCV? Right, lab-wise. And we realized we didn't know the answer. <laughs> we were like, dang it. As we were sitting smart. there, and we're sitting there looking at, it and and I was like, "Oh no!" We're like just, this is this is a case you're presenting to your PA students as a like they have to we come just, up with a solution, or y'all are just spitballing. To yourself? We were writing like he was he had written up the case because I told him let's come up with one that we could use to help kind of like solidify mm -hmm. the ideas, and so he was trying to get it like you know come at looking at the iron deficiency, treating that, and then dealing with the B12 deficiency later and the way you set up was great but then that one stupid question that we had to ask ourselves as far as like what that would look like from an MCV like would one would the iron deficiency hit first so that would make the MCV go low mm -hmm. or would they the low and the high cancel it out and mm -hmm. it would be normocytic and so we didn't we didn't and then I'm like great you realize what you've done <laughs> <laughs> I was like we have to go into deep research now and like I was like oh no yeah. This is, look what you did. So the best that we could tell, and from asking around some clinicians that are professors of mine, it seems that if someone is deficient in both B12 and iron, then those could balance each other out. So you could get a normal MCV on the lab values. Um, or if you are relatively more deficient in either B12 or iron, then the MCV would swing up or swing down. Um, so that just goes to show if you have symptoms of anemia, you should start running some of those diagnostic lab tests like B12, folate, 
um, serum ferritin just to give you a better picture of what's low and what's not, even if the MCV says everything's good. So the answer is all of the above. Yeah. yeah. Once, once your hemoglobin goes Those low, the easiest questions. all the stuff. Yeah. So, so you spend easy. this whole podcast telling people that MCV is a crucial diagnostic criteria, but yeah, thanks. maybe not. So there you go. Yeah. Just ruined my entire thesis. Basically, we have no <laughs> idea what's going on with anybody. So just, just B12 and just iron give for them, everyone. Just give them iron. It'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> They'll be okay. But uh, yeah, so um, we're going to have that available uh, hopefully this week and um, we'll put it up on Medium. So that's a new kick we're on. Uh, we came up, the first case we posted was a, a depression case with um, some anxiety thrown in there as well. And we based that off of uh, the same algorithm that we based our podcast episode on. But this gives you a little bit more of a clinical picture so you can kind of work through the case so if you haven't checked that out yet it's on medium um the links to it are on like facebook and stuff as well but um yeah check that out love to hear your feedback as well and then um, we'll hopefully get this this um, hematology or anemia case up fairly soon cool so yeah that's uh, all i got anything else for you cole that's all i got man aaron have a good night <laughs> So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you do have any questions, emails are below in the show notes. Uh, also, you can use our text platform, um, text 415-943-6116, and um, you'll get like an automatic response. Fill out the information that comes in there. It just goes to me. We're obviously not sharing your information with anybody, and um, we'll uh, send updates and things like that. So when I was actually developing the case, I sent out the case to all my people on my text platform first before um, anybody else got to see it. So I got some feedback there. So some, some, some exclusive stuff on there. Um, and then, uh, yeah, in, in, you know, social media, Instagram, Facebook, a lot of fun stuff. Hit us up on any of those. We'll get back to you as quick as we can. And uh, thank you guys as always for listening. We appreciate it greatly. See ya.